our culture places all the focus on the outside. And if you have money, you can change your appearance. But who can change your heart? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, and the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and following, for the ultimate before and after story. Something this morning looked to me like you need an extreme makeover. One of the things that's really captured the fancy of our culture is extreme makeovers. In fact, ABC made it one of their major thrusts. They take an ugly duckling, someone that's felt that their nose wasn't right and their hair wasn't right and their poundage wasn't right and the shape of their body wasn't right, and they bring in the experts in physical transformation in the modern world, the people that have made share into a beautiful diva and they bring in all these plastic surgeons and everything and they go to work and they take someone like my daughter-in-law Laura that's a cosmetologist and they make this person over like if it's a woman they give them a brand new hairdo and brand new makeup and just a total extreme makeover if it's a man if you don't have hair they put hair on your head but the story is, is it's this ugly duckling that we've all read that story as kids and then the person suddenly turns into a beautiful queen or to a beautiful princess or a beautiful prince. When the program is over and the person looks at themselves in the mirror and as they go into the society, there's all this excitement. There's all this wondrous celebration. It was very interesting that they did these right after all the extreme makeover was done. Then they took a picture a year later or maybe a year and a half later. You know, it's interesting. Already I can see the signs of dropping and drooping and waking again. And a woman figures out, man, I just can't wear my hair frazzled all over the place and, and still take care of all these kids and do this job and everything. And you start to see that marvelous makeover begin to decay. It's a great metaphor. You live in a culture, the American culture, more than any other culture in the world, puts all the emphasis on the outside. There's some of you young girls that are here that are saying, well, I'm not going to ever look like Nicole Kidman, so why should I live? Why should I exist? Some of you guys say, well, I'm not going to ever you know, look like a famous actor. I'm not going to ever be over six feet and be tall, dark, and handsome. I'm not going to ever be that. Your society says that because you're not going to be able to be that, that you're not worth anything. And some of you deep in your soul wrestle with that. That's why that program's so valid it's, and why it's so powerful. Because your culture says that if this wondrous thing that could be done, what about people that don't have the money to be changed in this beautiful swan? What you really need, the, the joy of an extreme makeover is a marvelous thing. To be changed, to be transformed, to suddenly realize you're beautiful is a marvelous thing. But to believe that it needs to be being beautiful on the outside is not what your heavenly daddy covets for every one of you. What your heavenly daddy wants to do is to do what I really need and what you really need. He wants to do an extreme makeover. In fact, if you've come to Christ, your heavenly daddy laid a foundation. He totally gave you an extreme makeover. In fact, he decided he'd just start all over again. Like, he doesn't just do an extreme makeover, but he says, you are a corpse. You were not only ugly, you were dead. You were unresponsive to him, you were, you were hateful towards him, you were totally dead, unresponsive spiritually. And he decided that he would reach you in his grace and he would do an extreme new resurrection gift would be given to you in your life. 
Part of what I wanted to do is return to Ephesians chapter 4 today. The Apostle Paul wants you to focus in on the celebration of the extreme makeover that Jesus has done in your life and mine. And as he does that, he warns us. Now, as we read our passage today, what the Apostle Paul is going to do in Ephesians chapter 4 is he's going to remind us about what our life was like before Christ. In my own case, I was five years old when I came to know Christ. So it's not like I walked away from Christ and I have many years of memory of not knowing Christ. And some of you kids have been raised in our church, you join me in that. And so I have to read it by saying, this is what it's like to live without the grace of Christ in your life. And you can, and it's a marvelous testimony if you don't have too much of a before. Don't look upon that as a negative thing. But also, you can look around you, and one of the dangers for me as a Christian kid is that I can look out at the world and feel like when I see the glamour, when I see the handsomeness and the, and the materialistic and lifestyle and all the fame and fortune, I can feel like, man, I need to get out there. That's where the action is. I mean, I've never been able to live out there in that world, and that's where it's really going to be fun. Well, that's where you need to really listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying, because the Apostle Paul wants to put an old head on a young shoulder. And maybe your mom and dad don't expose to you what the world is really like. Sometimes Christian kids feel like I'm all in this little bubble and out there's where all the action is and all Christianity is is a bunch of don'ts and no fun and it's boring and all the fun and all the pleasurable things are out there in the party scene and doing you know, the things that I can't do because I'm in this Christian idea and this Christian culture. And one of the things I want you to realize is the Apostle Paul doesn't teach like that. The Apostle Paul tells you the truth about what it's like not to have Christ in your life. And that's where he begins. The Apostle Paul knows nothing about someone who knows Jesus as their Savior and has had Jesus come to live inside of them, and there's absolutely no change that takes place in their life. You see, in American evangelicalism, we have the idea that if you give a mental assent, in other words, if you say, God loves me, Jesus died for me, Jesus rose again, I know that that's true and I believe it. And what I'm really saying is, yeah, I know that. I think it's true that I'm saved. There's a major content thrust. And what I want to share with you is that that's part of the gospel. That is the essence of the gospel. But faith and trust is connecting with the head. It's a personal dependence. It's crossing over the line and letting Jesus to come and live inside of you. It's responding to him. Faith is not just mental assent. I've often taught you faith moves beyond just mental assent and it becomes a personal heart commitment that you make. It doesn't mean that you evaluate your life and base your salvation upon your good works. But what it does mean is that you realize we're not just talking about content here. We're talking about a genuine supernatural happening that happens in my life. The Apostle Paul believes that that's happened to the Ephesians. And when he gets to Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Now, we began Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3 with the Apostle Paul saying, You have this incredible chosenness in Christ. And that's what I, we were in communion. I tried to remind you of some of the precious realities, the gifts that we become the children of God, that we were chosen to be part of this family before the world was even created, 
that we used to be dead in our sins. Now we've been made alive with Christ. In chapter 3, we learned about the fact that God building this incredible, invisible building called the, the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And it's growing into a great, wondrous celebration of, for that's going to be present for all of eternity. We learned that Jews and Gentiles are now no longer Jews and Gentiles, but they are Christ ones. They are the followers of Jesus, and they're united together. We learned that all the social, human social um, distinctions that we tend to put so much importance in, Jesus demolishes all that. It doesn't make any difference whether you're rich or poor, whether you're red, yellow, black or white, or chartreuse or purple. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you are one of his kids. Color distinctions are totally eliminated. All kinds of human racial distinctions between the different nations are totally annihilated in the oneness of Jesus. And our responsibility is to respond to these realities of what the Spirit is doing. And the Apostle Paul says that we do this with humility and with gentleness. And then in in verse 4 of chapter 4, he jumped off on it. He got going on this theme of unity, and he focused on the importance of working hard to keep the unity of the faith. And that's what we've been learning in the book of Ephesians, that you actually have to strive in the spirit to stay connected as a husband and a wife, to stay connected with your kids, to stay connected with your church family. One of the ideas the Apostle Paul is telling you is that unity, the oneness of your family, the oneness of your church family, the unity together is a precious thing that the Holy Spirit is trying to maintain. But you need to strive with him. You need to work with him. And, and don't think that it was easy in the first century. Jews and Gentiles had tremendous conflict with each other. So we're going to have tremendous conflict. I can illustrate it quickly. A lot of young couples get married and think, I've been married for a year, a couple years, three years, and then suddenly the wife suddenly decides I don't love him, or the husband decides I hate this woman's guts. And what you're really saying is, we started hurting each other. I started seeing the little things that he or she does, and this is really tough, and it's not easy, and I don't have gushy feelings anymore. That's when you decide whether you're going to be committed. That's when you're going to decide whether we're going to work this out. It doesn't just happen. You've got to work at it. You've got to say, I made a covenant. I got a relationship here. I swore a holy vow before the triune God, and he's not going to let me off that vow. So we've got to work on this. Your marriage isn't going to work unless you strive for unity, and you're not going to strive for unity unless you just say, I'm in because of God. The same thing true in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. You made a covenant with Jesus when you invited him to live in your heart, and he made a covenant with you, and he's going to keep his promise. And the unity flows from that. Now, as we get to the next section, Paul returns to what he began in verses 1 through 3, and what he shared with us, his basic thrust is you've received an extreme makeover. Now live like it. Act on it. Let's see what he says. He begins, look at verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. That's the way the NIV translates it. I can write it this. I solemnly declare to you, to make it even more kind of a scriptural sounding, the Apostle Paul is saying, he, it's like he, he uses a, a phraseology in Greek that says, I'm one of the apostles, one of the foundational apostles, and I want you to know this is really important. This is inspired by the Lord. I think he's saying this in the Lord, like he's saying all of Ephesians. So don't duck this. The Apostle Paul is saying this is really important. He underscores, and what does he insist on in the Lord? That you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. I should be able to take an unbeliever's life, and I should be able to take your life. And there should be a difference. Did you hear what I just said? The Apostle Paul is saying this. 
If you have an unbelieving relative in your family, I should be able to take the life of your unbelieving relatives and your life, and there should be a difference. And we need to really pray about that. That's the, one of the major problems in evangelical Christianity. We've forgotten that. It is by grace. It is a gift. But it's the most powerful gift. It actually does something. The Apostle Paul then outlines what some of the differences are. In other words, he doesn't make... Like, in my upbringing, they've, they've narrowed it down. You don't play cards, you don't go to the movies, you don't drink, you, know, a bunch, you don't dance, a bunch of all those things like that. And then you, were that, you weren't worldly. And what, I, what I've had to learn is that, is that the Scripture doesn't do that. What the Scripture does, it doesn't just come up with a list of code words and external performances that all of you can figure out and you can let a whole bunch of other really cruddy, dirty attitudes just be totally dominating your life. The Apostle Paul doesn't do that. So don't turn Christianity into some legal performance external thing. It gets really deep. Now, what does life look like? What do I look like before Christ really turns me over and gives me an extreme makeover and makes me new? Before we look at these things, I want to remind you, because a lot of you as believers are angry with unbelievers. I want to share something, a really dirty thing Satan does. What Satan does is make you as a believer... See what your unbelieving friends do. See what your unbelieving family members do. And you get ticked at them. You get angry with them. Your believing friends can do some of the same things and, and you'll find a weird quirk in your life. You don't get nearly as angry with them about it. And we need to reverse that. I had one of the guys in our church family say that it's really helping me in dealing with a relative. I'm just realizing that maybe they're just an unbeliever. And I should expect them to act like they do because they're dead. The Lord doesn't want you as a child of God to be angry with sinners. He wants you to be angry with sin. But I know a lot of evangelicals, they're just angry with sinners. They're angry with homosexuals. They want to kill them to make an extreme example. They're angry with people that are drug abusers and people that are alcoholics and stuff. They're just furious with them. Want to get the laws, let's change the laws and, and let's get rid of them. Man, let's just, I've even had believers say, let's kill them. And that's why we're not making much of an impact because that's not the good news. That's not real good news. We need to be angry with sin, but Paul, and this passage can easily be used. I could teach the passage I'm talking about today and make you really angry with unbelievers and that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is not talking about your attitude towards unbelievers. He's talking about your attitude towards your own life. It's really interesting how we turn things around and get focused on other people. Paul wants you to think about what it's like not to have Jesus in your life, and he wants you to get angry with the vestiges, the hangovers, the dead corpse that we tend to carry around in our life when we don't shouldn't, this old way of life. Now, what is it like not to have Christ in your life? And you need to decide, if I think all the actions out there, if I think all the good times are out there, I want to go, this is reality. If you're young, I want you to listen to me, and you don't have to be seven years old and suddenly wake up, man, I did this wrong. I'm going to share with you, if you don't trust in Jesus, you don't build your life on Jesus, you don't enjoy intimacy with him, and you build your life on another foundation, this is what it's going to look like. The very first thing Paul says is that they are futile in their thinking. The word futile means that they'll be empty in their thinking. What it means is that their life, like if you want to read about this, the book of Ecclesiastes is an entire book that will give you all the things that you can build your life on 
without Jesus. And it shows how it turns out to be just nothing but emptiness. An example of this would be like I shared earlier in the message, I shared with you like extreme makeover. All the emphasis is on is the way that you look on the outside. And this is what Paul means. They are futile in their thinking. You live in a culture that spends millions upon millions of dollars to smell right, to look right, to get their hair right. But you know what? The reality is it's empty. Because you live in a world where it, that physical beauty is decaying before your very eyes. You girls, like when you look at a beautiful actress and they put her on a great big screen and she's about 150 times bigger than she's supposed to be. When I was a kid, Liz Taylor, I remember when I was in high school, Liz Taylor at 40, they put a picture on Time magazine of Liz Taylor without any makeup on and all the society goes, wow, look how beautiful she is. The kids laugh at the beauty of Liz Taylor today. She's not beautiful anymore, is she, guys? None of you have lusted after Liz Taylor's beauty the last week. And you need to remember that every, every woman that you lust after, every woman that you just think it's about the physical beauty, you are living an empty, deceitful, empty lie that will turn out to be meaningless. And I just told you the truth. The lifestyle that Hollywood's telling you is a lifestyle that says this is all there is, and the scripture's saying that it's empty. Another thing that the, the Gentiles live for, in fact, Gentiles especially, going back to the Greek philosophers when Paul wrote this, the Greek philosophers lived for the intellectual skill, for example, of a Plato or of an Aristotle, and they prided themselves how they used their mind to figure everything out. But what the history of philosophy has shown is that it all ends, we can't figure it out. In fact, the modern philosophy of today is called postmodernism, which means that we thought for the last 150 years, since the late 1700s, that we could use our reason, we could use our mind, and we could figure out the ultimate reality. And the leading philosophers, as we begin the 21st century, are saying it was a lie, that it was all just a power game, and that nobody really has the answer. And that's what Paul is saying. It turns out to be emptiness. The other thing that Paul is saying is that I can live, for example, I can live for the skill of my mind. I can live for reading books, and I can live for getting those degrees. And all that has to happen is a, is a trigger goes wrong in my mind, and suddenly I'm drooling out of my mouth, and I'm in a rest home, and I become weaker than an imbecile, and it becomes emptiness. Where did all that intellectualism go? Where did all that pride of, of having a high IQ go? It's gone, just like that. That's what the emptiness means. You happen to live in a world, no matter what you might take, no matter what you might believe, this is going to be like, say, family life. Some of you are saying, man, I live for my family. That's going to be the thing I live for. The reality is that your life flows out. Some of your kids are going to lose their life. Your partner could suddenly get terminal disease and they're gone. Some of your kids will break through your heart and wander away and not want to talk to you. Those are the real-life stories that I see happening all the time. And if you make it your ultimate objective, family, that's what all life is about. That's the meaning of life. Is that really going to fulfill all of your needs? You see, from a human standpoint, when you eliminate the upper story, when there's no connection with eternity, when there's just a connection with the physical world, which is all that your secular society is trying to tell you, and the scripture is trying to counter that, we need to see how everything around it is telling us it's just about this lower story. And Paul is telling you the truth. 
If you live just for the lower story, it's going to turn out to be futile. And that's why you need to be connected with Jesus, because he isn't empty, and he isn't meaningless, and he isn't futile. One day, in Jesus, there's answers, and there's hope, and there's light. The next characteristic of the unbelieving world is that they're darkened in their understanding. A lot of your unbelieving friends don't get it. They don't understand it. And you get really frustrated like that. And it's like they're in a dark room. I get up sometimes real early in the morning, and because all of our kids are home visiting, I can't get to the usual place I need to go. And so I stumble in the dark, and there's suitcases and everything else, and I fall flat on my head, and I hit my head on the lamp, and a million other things. Because I'm stumbling in the dark. Why do I do that? Because I can't see. Unbelievers can't see spiritual reality. For example, if you're sitting here this morning, and you don't get it, it's because you're darkened in your understanding. Like, I remember years ago, I tutored a girl in algebra. And Sam could have taught her algebra probably, but I couldn't do it to save my life. She was darkened in algebra. How many of you are darkened in algebra, okay? You'll understand what I'm talking about. Like, when I studied chemistry, this was literally true. In, in chemistry, some people just couldn't get it. And we even use the expression, just hang in there, the lights will come on. Well, for a ton of people in my class, they never, never came on. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying morally, not in chemistry or algebra, but morally and spiritually. In fact, Paul is not saying that unbelievers can't be really sharp in algebra and in chemistry and in astronomy and in technology. So don't think that Paul is saying that unbelievers are stupid intellectually. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that morally and spiritually, they're in the dark. They're darkened. They tend to turn out and resist even the light. It's, it's not just an innocent darkness, but they, they want to live in darkness. When you're sinning, when you think back over your life, when you sin, do you want the lights on or off? When you make out with someone that's not your life partner, you turn on the brightest lights in your living room, or you make sure that the overhead light's on in the car, right? Wrong. When you sin, when you're going to steal, a thief makes sure that they steal right and bright. Like, what do you do to keep thieves from stealing from your house? You put in emergency lights that trigger when they, they go walking through the beam. And what well, the Lord is saying that there's a culpable darkness in our life before we come to know Christ. So number one, they're empty, they're darkened, they're separated from the life of God. There's nothing sadder than not being connected with that upper story. They're just totally disconnected with the life that God wants to give us. I pray with all my heart the opposite that is true in your own life, that one of the most precious realities that you have is Jesus is with you. You're not alone. You're not alienated. The idea is like some of you are alienated from a, a life partner. Your life partner left you. And you know the agony. They separated from you. They walked out. You wanted to love them. You wanted to cherish them for a lifetime. They just walked away from you. If you've had that happen, then you'll understand God's heart. God's heart is saying the unbeliever chose willfully to separate from me. Because scripture says God so loved the world. Scripture says that God gave the gift of his son. And what Paul is telling us is that unbelievers resist. Part of that separation, part of, you can feel the separation when you mention the Lord Jesus Christ. In the unbelieving world, automatically the unbelieving world starts to resist that. 
they start to respond strongly against them. There's all this conflict. Why? Because we're not reconciled. We're alienated. We're separated from the life that God wants to give us. And so don't get angry with your unbelieving friends when they don't get it because they're in the dark, when they live for empty things because their life turns out to be built on futile sand foundations. And when they just are separated, they're alienated. They feel this hostility. The word here is not just an innocent alienation. It is a downright anger against God. And that moves into the idea because of the ignorance that is in them. They are ignorant. Now, this is not an ignorance that's innocent. This is an ignorant where God tries to talk to them and they decide, I'm not going to listen. This is the darkness where you shine the light and they try to put their hand over the darkness. Like everybody in the world, God is speaking through, through natural revelation in the world. Everyone, every human being on planet earth, God is speaking to, according to Romans 1 and Psalm 19. And what the scripture is telling us, and Paul's reaffirming what he tells in Romans 1, is that we hold that down. We resist it. We don't reach out to it. It's an ignorance that is not just, I didn't know, but I suppress the truth that God tries to give me. And what's really important, when you come to know Christ, the opposite of that is you want the lights turned on. You hunger to know. That's what a Bible church is built on. We stop every Sunday and we open up this book because we want to know. We want to have teaching. We want to get rid of the ignorance. And the idea here is that God wants to fill us in on the way things are the way that our families really run, the way that our internal life really runs, the way that we can really conquer sin, the way we can have the hope of eternal life, all those precious truths that we really need to know. The Lord Jesus wants to work in your heart to give you a great hunger for that. Your unbelieving friends, don't get frustrated with them, but you need to realize they're ignorant of that. They hold down that. And what you need to do, rather than getting angry with them, you want to pray specifically for them. Pray that the Lord will, will give them a hunger to know. Pray that God will graciously work in their heart to soften them up, which is the next thing Paul talked about. It says, due to the hardness of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continued lust for more. The Apostle Paul moves from an internal structure. He ends the final thing about their internal structure by saying that their heart had become hard. The word that's used here is like a callus over a deep wound so that you can prick it and you can hit it and they're totally insensitive. It's like a person with the disease of leprosy whose neurological endings have ceased to work and so they wound themselves and their skin becomes hard and insensitive and they don't respond. Pastor Hughes, it's a pastor of College Church at Wheaton, told the story way back in the 1800s During the days of William Wilberforce, there was a prime minister of England called Penn, who was one of the leading prime ministers of England. And he was an Anglican, but just culturally an Anglican, had no real intimacy with Christ. And William Wilberforce was a very fiery, powerful evangelical that loved Jesus with all of his heart. And and Wilberforce went to a Bible church, the equivalent of that. It wasn't called a Bible church, but a man opened up the word of God. and, And Wilberforce always tried to get Penn, his friend, to come to church with him. So he said, Penn, come on. You know, you're my friend. You know, I mean, this makes my week. It challenges my heart. And so they went for the beginning of a new year. And Penn finally said, yeah, I'll go with your, I will, you know, Wilberforce, I'll go with you. 
So they sat in church, and Wilberforce describes how he, it was one of the greatest messages that he ever heard. It was just marvelous. He was just responding to it. And Penn, as they walked out the door to the church, Penn said, Wilberforce, for the life of me, I don't see how you can ever think that was the most bull. I didn't get one thing that your preacher was talking about. I, it's just, it, what do you see in this? What's the difference? Wilberforce has become softened. He's become tender. And God talks to him. Penn was an unbeliever. And Wilberforce prayed for his friend and prayed that his friend would have that hardness taken away. And one of the burdens I want the believing young people in our church and our children not to look at the world out there as that exciting place because it's the place where there's emptiness. It's the place where there's alienation. It's the place where there's hardness, where there's all of these terrible separations from God that we're talking about. And we need to pray that the Lord will take away that hardness because some of you have had that miracle happen. Paul then switches gears. He says, this is what it's like not to have Jesus in your life. And one of the things he wants us to realize is that we need to not be like that in our own heart. Dave Wurtson can start to live like that. And Paul closes by not just talking about our internal life, but he talks about how we manifest that. How do we live like that? What are the actions that come? Let me just share with you the actions that he spells out. The first action he talks about is having lost all sensibility, having become hard, not listening to God's voice of conscience in their life, not listening to his word. They lose sensitivity to that because they're hard. They give themselves over to sensuality. Now, the word that's used there is a word that means there's no boundaries. In fact, we even in our culture have a phrase, no boundaries. And the idea is that I'm free. Your culture teaches you that the ultimate freedom You can do whatever you want to do sexually. You have a right to decide your identity with sexuality. You have a right to decide what your morals are going to be. This word means that there's no boundaries. And our culture constantly tells you that is freedom. That's going to be a really good thing. Scripture teaches that will destroy you. The Greek word is used, like a Roman soldier, right in the temple, exposed himself, dropped his pants, right in the holy precincts of the temple. That's this word, no boundaries. You know why he was doing that? He was saying, I curse Yahweh, I curse the Jews, I curse worship. I'm a Gentile Roman pagan. And the word that Josephus used to describe that act is this word. And that's one of the extreme manifestations of it. Your culture is going to tell you, no boundaries. There's a deep, seductive part of every one of our lives in this room today that wants to escape from restraints. And God is saying, no, I created life in you so that you can have boundaries in your life, so that you can have good control in your life. He has great joys for you. And he doesn't want you to live a life without any moral restraints. He doesn't want you to live without any boundaries. But the cool thing is Jesus comes to live inside of you and creates internal boundaries. The second word, living your life without boundaries, causes you to become dirty. And unbelieving world without God, the way that they act out that internal hardness, that internal insensitivity, the unbelieving world tells dirty jokes. We even use the phrase... They do dirty things. You say, Dave, what do you mean by that? When you're watching at night, 
when they smirk and when they tell the story, and it wouldn't be something that your little children could hear, there's a part of you that says, isn't that cool? Graffiti on the bathroom walls. Dirtiness. In fact, when you do it, when you give in to a life without boundaries, you even feel unclean. You feel dirty. And that's what the unbelieving world is expressing. And you live in a culture where people are dirty, where people are doing very dirty, unclean things. But we celebrate it. We celebrate the freedom because your culture says that what's really important is to be free. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't listen to that for a second because it will destroy you. If you live a life without boundaries, you'll become unclean. And the third action that comes out of this is that you indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's the word greed. The Apostle Paul, as we go on next week, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about a totally contrasting life. And all we'll be able to do this morning is look on what is it like in kind of a, a downer. But this is a really good MRI about this is what it's like to live without Christ. And the word greed, your culture tells you and my culture tells me, greed is what makes it all go. In other words, if you're sexually immoral, like guys, if you're addicted to pornography, what you're doing is worshiping desire. And I want to share something about that. You'll never get enough. Your culture, some of you guys are going to be in college classrooms, they're going to tell you, the way that you deal with lust is you enjoy it. You look at the woman on the internet, you look at the guy on the internet, because women in our culture are having the same struggle as I talk to different women. Some of them are wrestling with this, and it's a powerful example of greed, and I'll hold your attention as we close, because when you talk about this, automatically you listen. But I want you to think about how this is just one manifestation of greed, but what happens in pornography is you're greedy, for that fulfillment of the desire. And I want to show you what, what hell is. You know what hell is? Hell is eternal desires, and you're never satisfied. You're eternally thirsty, but you never can drink enough. You're eternally hungry, but you can never eat enough. You eternally want to be close to somebody and, and have physical pleasure, but you can never get enough. That's what greed is. You see, God loves you. God has a plan for Dave. He has a plan for the joys I should have in my life, for the money I should have in my life, for the family there should be in my life, for the struggles that I should have, and for the joys I should have. And it's a marvelous plan for Dave. But I have a part of me that's greedy to have what you have or to have what you have. And that's when I say, God, I think your plan and your gifts stink and I want something else that's what greed is and it's idolatry Colossians tells us greed which is idolatry when you look at that woman late at night at the internet you are worshipping the goddess of desire and she will murder you if you're homosexual it's a very blatant example if you're homosexual you're not going to be devoted to one partner for a lifetime because you're hungry for desire. You've decided, I'm not going to listen to God's fulfillment of desire. I'm not going to listen to the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to be listening to God's design. I don't believe in Genesis 2, where God created Adam and Eve. I believe in my own. It, all that homosexuality is, is just going down the ladder of, I live, no boundaries, I live for desire. And I can give you one illustration after another. Friends of mine, even some close friends, who are dead today, because they never could get enough of desire. 
The cruises were fun. The nightlife was fun. The pleasure was exotic. But they got sick. And their body wasted away. And they died. And their sin spills over on innocent victims. Because through blood transfusion and other means of contracting AIDS, the sin flows over. Now, don't get angry with homosexuals because they need Jesus. But that's just a very blatant reality in our culture that spells out what no boundaries, dirtiness, greed, it ends in death. Next week we go on and the Lord says, but you didn't learn Christ like this. And I want to close by saying this. The moment you came to Jesus, if you're a homosexual, if Jesus came into your life, if you're, a, if you're addicted to pornography, and those are just some of the extreme, what we think are big extreme things. Maybe you're addicted to anger. Maybe you're addicted to jealousy. The really cool thing, the moment you came to know Jesus, that became the old way of life. That became the old person. That became the old you. And Jesus made a new you. And next week we're going to talk about living in that new person, that new man or woman. What I want to really motivate you about is the preciousness of the resurrected, new, eternal life that Jesus gives to you. This isn't about keeping just a list of performance standards. This is about being delivered from emptiness. It's about being delivered from alienation. It's about being delivered from hardness. It's about being delivered from no love and being filled with hate and being filled with the incredible, eternal, resurrected life of Jesus. I covet that for every one of you. I covet for kids. Be protected from that unbelieving lifestyle. Let's pray. Father, I'd ask you, Lord, that you would be our vision today. I thank you that your word tells us the truth about what it's like to be separated from you. I thank you so much that Ephesians has made it really clear that it's not your desire to be separated. It's not your desire for us to live in the dark. And I want to pray, Lord, that we will listen to the light of your word every moment of this coming year. Lord, I pray that we will make some firm decisions and not just listen to Ephesians on Sunday morning, but now to take it during the week and let you talk to us through this passage and let it work into our actions, let it work into our family relationships. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.